are we? Jonathan has led Israel to battle, to a victory over the Philistines. And if you recall last week, he actually looked at his armor bearer and he says, let's go. Let's step forward in faith and let's just see what the Lord may do. Let's pick up our swords and let's go. That we're going to trust the Lord that whatever's in front of us, he is going to go before us and he is going to fight for this victory. And then he says, I'm going because of this, because nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, not many and not few. And I love what his armor bearer said to him. He said, let's go. I'm with you. I'm with you heart and soul. That the armor bearer looked at Jonathan. He saw the courage that he had. He saw and heard the steely resolution of Jonathan's faith that Jonathan trusted the Lord and it showed in how he lived and it showed in how he fought And so they step forward into this battle, just Jonathan and his armor bearer, and the Lord proves his faithfulness once again that day. So by the time we come to the scriptures that we're in today, King Saul and the rest of the army have joined Jonathan and the armor bearer in the fight, and the Philistines have fled before them. And we read, finishing that text, these words, that the Lord saved Israel that day. And that the battle passed beyond some place named Beth-Avon. And now, if you would, let's finish out chapter 14 by reading together, beginning at verse 24. It says, And the men of Israel had been hard-pressed that day. So Saul had laid an oath on the people, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening, and I am avenged on my enemies. So none of the people had tasted food. Now when all the people came to the forest, behold, there was honey on the ground. And when the people entered the forest, behold, the honey was dropping. But no one put his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the oath. But Jonathan had not heard his father charge the people with the oath. So he put out the tip of his staff that was in his hand, and he dipped it in the honeycomb, and he put his hand to his mouth, and his eyes became bright." Then one of the people said, Your father strictly charged the people with an oath, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food this day. And the people were faint. Then Jonathan said, My father has troubled the land. See how my eyes have become bright because I tasted a little of the honey? How much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies that they found? For, then, for now the defeat among the Philistines has not been great." They struck down the Philistines that day from Michmash to Ahalon, and the people were very faint. The people pounced on the spoil and took sheep and oxen and calves and slaughtered them on the ground, and the people ate them with the blood. Then they told Saul, Behold, the people are sinning against the Lord by eating with the blood. And he said, You've dealt treacherously. Roll a great stone to me here. And Saul said, Disperse yourselves among the people and say to them, Let every man bring his ox or his sheep and slaughter them here and eat. And do not sin against the Lord by eating with the blood. So every one of the people brought his ox with him that night and they slaughtered them there. And Saul built an altar to the Lord. It was the first altar that he built to the Lord. Then Saul said, Let us go down after the Philistines by night and plunder them until the morning light. Let us not leave a man of them. And they said, do whatever seems good to you. But the priest said, let us draw near to God here. 
And Saul inquired of God, shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you give them into the hand of Israel? But he did not answer him that day. And Saul said, come here, all you leaders of the people, and know and see how this sin has arisen today. For as the Lord lives who saves Israel, though it be in Jonathan, my son, he shall surely die. But there was not a man among all the people who answered him. Then he said to all Israel, you shall be on one side, and I and Jonathan, my son, will be on the other side. And the people said to Saul, do what seems good to you. Therefore Saul said, O Lord God of Israel, why have you not answered your servant this day? If this guilt is in me or in Jonathan, my son, O Lord God of Israel, give you him. But if this guilt is in your people Israel, give Thummim. And Jonathan and Saul were taken, but the people escaped. Then Saul said, Cast the lot between me and my son Jonathan. And Jonathan was taken. Then Saul said to Jonathan, Tell me, what have you done? And Jonathan told him, I tasted a little honey with the tip of the staff that was in my hand. Here I am, I will die. And Saul said, God do so to me, and more also, you shall surely die, Jonathan. Then the people said to Saul, Shall Jonathan die, who has worked this great salvation in Israel? Far from it. As the Lord lives, there shall not one hair of his head fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. So the people ransomed Jonathan so that he did not die. Then Saul went up from pursuing the Philistines, and the Philistines went to their own place. We're almost there, guys. Stick with me. When Saul had taken the kingship over Israel, he fought against all his enemies on every side, against Moab, against the Ammonites, against Edom, against the kings of Zobah, and against the Philistines. Wherever he turned, he routed them, and he did valiantly instruct the Amalekites and delivered Israel out of the hands of those who plundered them. Now the sons of Saul were Jonathan, Ishvi, and Malchi, Shua, and the names of his two daughters were these. The name of the firstborn was Merib, and the name of the younger, Michael. And the name of Saul's wife was Ahinoam, the daughter of Ahimaaz. And the name of the commander of his army was Abner, the son of Ner, Saul's uncle. Kish was the father of Saul, and Ner, the father of Abner, was the son of Abiel. There was hard fighting against the Philistines all the days of Saul. And when Saul saw any strong man or any valiant man, he attached him to himself. All of that was the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you that you speak to us, that we don't just say this is the word of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. So when we hear it, may we hear it. And when we hear it, May we believe, may we obey, may we trust all it is you are telling us. Lord, this is a 3,000-year-old story, a strange story. And yet we know that you've given it to us so that we can know you rightly and know ourselves rightly and know this fallen world from Columbus to Beijing and to the ends of the earth so that we can understand that our God reigns over every square inch. Lord, may we see you rightly today. Move among us for the glory of your name and in your great mercy. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, so we've seen the leadership of Jonathan. And now the, the, the view kind of turns to a section that shows Saul's leadership. And you heard the story. 
This king lays an oath on his army in the midst of a battle that they are not to eat anything until he is avenged on his enemies. So they fight this battle all day and they don't eat a single thing. They're even marching, and as they're marching, they come along a forest, and there are honeycombs that are, that are so full of honey that they're overflowing, and it's just dripping on the ground. And you can picture these tired, worn-out, probably blood-splattered soldiers. They're starving, and they're faint, and they're having to walk by this food and just keep going. Why? Because their king made an oath that they could not eat any of it or they would die. In verse 28, we read, the people were faint. That is taking a toll on them, as you can understand. Well, was it Nick Clark? Back in your day, y'all probably didn't drink water during football practice, did you? It made you a sissy. Nick's pretty manly. Maybe they were onto something. But this is crazy. Don't eat anything. Just keep going, keep marching. Keep fighting. By verse 31, it says not just that they were faint, but that they were very faint, that this was taking a toll and it was getting worse. Well, the time comes when Jonathan, the son of Saul, he works his way to this same forest and he sees the honey dipping down and dripping onto the ground and he takes the staff in his hand, he dips it and he gets some on his hand and he eats it. And we're told that he didn't know the oath. He wasn't there when the oath was given. He didn't know that it, there was a curse put on this if they ate. And yet he doesn't seem to receive the signs of the curse. Instead, it says that when it, test, when it touches his, his mouth, his eyes became bright, that he lit up, that the faintness that was around him kind of was lifted off of him. Essentially, he's revived due to the honey that he eats. And yet the men tell him that his father had strictly charged them not to eat any food. And so Jonathan responds rather bluntly. Now, I don't know how old Jonathan was. He's old enough to be a soldier but he's got this little kind of teenage vibe, doesn't he? Listen to what he says. My father has troubled the land. I mean, look at me. See how my eyes have become bright after I ate the honey. How much better would we have been if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies that they found? For now, the defeat among the Philistines has not been great. That Jonathan is recognizing, and he's really saying out loud, this was a foolish oath that my father took. That this was an oath, and it's accompanying curse it's been a trouble on the men. It's actually harmed the task of finishing the battle. Now, understand this about the oath. What is the duty of the king? It was to make sure that his men, his fighting men, had everything they needed to be successful in the fight before him. And yet this oath that Saul gives, it does the opposite. It doesn't strengthen them. It harms them. It doesn't help the cause. It actually hinders the cause. It's a strange oath. Don't eat the spoil. Don't take the plunder that you've earned. Look, it's, it's not an oath that comes from the Lord. 
You won't read the Bible and see where this is the case. In fact, the, the, God's law actually speaks about this and says, yes, when you plunder an enemy, you can plunder them. You can take the spoil. You can eat of what is good. You can do those things unless the Lord tells you specifically not to do that in specific battles and in specific places. This wasn't a law of the Lord for this place. This was just something that Saul made up. You remember what Samuel said when he approached Saul after Saul gave the offering he wasn't supposed to give. Not only does he say, what have you done? He says, you've done foolishly. You've done a foolish thing. Well, here he is again. The leader of Israel has made a foolish oath. This king who's meant to go out before his people and kind of point them to the Lord and model for them the law of the Lord has not done that. He's meant to show them that obedience to God makes things go well, but that's not what he's done. He's not teaching them God's law. Instead, he's adding to God's law. He's giving them things that they were never meant to carry, and these laws, these rules that he's setting upon them, they're burdening them. He has, in fact, troubled the land. But notice the motivation for this oath. Saul says, do not eat anything until I am avenged on my enemies. You remember what we've talked about contrasting and comparing? Think about Jonathan just a few verses ago. Let's go and see what the Lord will do. The Lord will go before us. Nothing can hinder him from saving. And then you've got Saul. Don't eat until I am avenged. Like this section begins with this saying that the people were hard-pressed. It's actually the same exact word that is used in Exodus when talking about the slave masters over Egypt. That when the slave masters, the taskmasters in Egypt treated Israel, they, they hard-pressed them. That essentially, what we see Saul doing here is adding a burden to the people he's meant to lead that enslaves them and it starves them. You remember in chapter 8 when Israel asked for a king, what did God say? Yes, here's what your king's going to do. He's going to take... He's going to take, he's going to take, and you will be his slaves. And now it's using that same word. Saul is coming across as a taskmaster. They've been hard-pressed, and they've been enslaved, and they've been starved by him. Any of y'all feel that way where you feel very faint? where this fallen world is just kind of crushing down on you and you just kind of feel beat up by it. You're tired in every single way, not just the sleep way, right? You're just tired. You're burdened. You're beaten down, even down to your very soul. And it may be even that, that your Christianity at some point kind of became all about, a, about rules, a list of do's and don'ts about laws, of what you can do and what you can't do. And so when you think about your walk with Christ, it's not about freedom. It actually feels more like captivity. I shouldn't do that. I shouldn't do that. I shouldn't do that. I can do that. I can't do that. And it's all taste, don't taste, don't touch, whatever it is. What that does is it takes your soul and it just kind of melts it down and crushes it. 
It makes you faint because that's not what it's about. Israel came to this king because they thought he would free them. But what they did was actually run from the one who had offered and promised them freedom. They would run from the one who says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. I'll give you rest for your souls. Look, we do this all the time, don't we? Where we turn our attention and our mindset off of the Christ who frees us and brings us liberty, and we put it back on those things that will bind us, that will crush us, that will burden us. Understand what, the, what, what repentance is. It is a turning from sin and to Christ. And the life of the Christian is always going to be that because you will find in your life there's a continual straying, right? We sing it in songs. We're prone to wander. Don't you feel it? that you're prone to leave the God you love. Now, don't mistake this, that when you do that, and you will do that, Jesus is always saying, come back, come to me. That when you go there and your soul is weary and your soul is heavy laden, he's always there saying, come on. Even tell stories about prodigal children and whatnot. And what's the father doing? You get the picture, he's just looking and he's waiting. Come on. Come on. So if that's where you are right now, you feel burdened, you feel hard-pressed in every way, come home. That's who Jesus is. If your soul is troubled, look to him once again. Be reminded of his word, of who he is for you, that he is savior, he is sustainer, he is comforter, he is friend, and he's always there for you. Humble yourself and come to him in faith. Look, Saul lays this oath on his people, and throughout the battle, they're becoming faint. By the time they get to Ahalon from Michmash, that's actually a 20-mile hike. How far did you go yesterday? Not that far. How's the foot? Not so good. Yeah, Dwayne ain't no spring chicken no more. Don't tell him I said that. Most of us aren't, are we? 20 miles during a battle, chasing, fighting, continuing on, no food. They were so hungry that they finally get to this place. They see the spoil. They see the, the sheep and the oxen and the steaks just standing there. And so they take their swords. They kill those animals. The animals fall down to the ground. Now, whether they cook them or not, it's kind of hard to tell. But what they do is they eat the meat with the blood still in it. Now, Saul laid on them a rule, a law that was not from the Lord. This right here is a law that is from the Lord. Genesis 9 and Leviticus 17 both tell the people of God, you must not eat meat with the blood in it. Yet here they are. Don't they kind of seem like savages here? Like, is that kind of the picture that you get? They're just there on the ground with these animals and they're just eating with the blood in it. 
This is what happens. If you're going to add rules and laws to the Bible that God does not give you, in time you're going to come to hold those rules and laws and forget God's laws. It's just the way it goes. That you will exchange the truth and the law of God for a lie, and you will come to worship and honor those rules and laws more than Him. Saul has done this. And then Saul is told, hey, look, the people are sinning. Look what they're doing. And Saul looks at them and says, you have dealt treacherously. Roll a stone to me. And so the people get this stone and they bring all the animals, the the sheep and the oxen and the calves, and they slaughter them on the stone the proper way, the way that God had told them to do. And we're told by the author that Saul built an altar to the Lord, and it was the first one that he built. Now think about something. In chapter 13, Saul has had the kingdom stripped from him, that he will no longer be king much longer and that none of his sons will sit on the throne. And since that moment, you've kind of started seeing this this rise in religion in Saul, that he's kind of becoming a religious person since that event. This chapter, or this verse has started with him calling a fast. This religious event. Don't eat until I'm avenged. Now he's bringing sacrifices. Now he's building altars, and the author just tells us, this is the first one. He'd never done this before. And then suddenly you see Saul change his mind on plunder and spoils. So he says, let's go raid again. Let's go out, let's see the Philistines, and let's try to put them all to death. That we'll spend this whole night pursuing them. Now that y'all have gotten a good, a good meal, let's go back out after them. And we're told that the people are looking at him, and they just say, do what seems good to you. But then the priest says, you know what? Maybe we should ask God what he thinks about Let's see what the Lord thinks. Will he go before us in this battle? And Saul says, that's a good idea. So they go to the Lord and they ask his thoughts. Saul inquires of God, what should we do? And the Lord doesn't answer him. Well, that's not the way it's supposed to work. When you call upon the Lord, he's supposed to answer you. And so Saul looks around and says, well, there must be a problem here. The equation's not working out. And so he brings all the leaders to him because he believes there must be sin in the camp, and that's why God is not answering. And so Saul makes an oath. As surely as the Lord lives who saves Israel, even if it's Jonathan, my son, who has done this, he will die. And notice what verse 39 says, that not a man in all of Israel answered him. That there's this feeling that they are starting to watch Saul, and it's just not adding up. You you, you hear what he's saying? Like, you ever just watch somebody doing something dumb? And you don't say anything because it's like going to Walmart to watch people. Isn't it? You don't say anything. You just... I mean, we do that to our kids. My kids do it to me sometimes. I made up a great dad joke last week, and that was the only response I got was... That's the picture you get here. Let's go battle. Let's go ask the Lord. Let's, Let's cast lots. Even if it's in Jonathan who made this problem, 
He's going to die if he's brought sin in the camp. And the people are just going, because what else can they do? So they cast lots. Saul says, okay, all the people stand over here, all of Israel here. Me and Jonathan, we'll stand over here. We're going to cast lots. And the lots cast, and the Lord chooses these two. Saul and Jonathan. Now, here's where it gets interesting. You get this conversation about the, the Urim and the Thummim, and you may say, well, I, what are those things? The priest would wear an ephod. Remember, we talked about the ephod last week, the clothes of the priest. And in the clothes of the priest were these two special stones, the Urim and the Thummim. And in some way, we don't really know, you would cast those stones and the, the will of the Lord would be made known among the people. That God would tell them what they were supposed to do, what they were supposed to, to think, and so that's what they do. They get the priest, they get the, the two stones out of, his, out of his robe, and they're casting these stones, and the lots fall to these two. Essentially saying, hey, the sin's over here, it's not in the people, it's in the leadership. And so they cast him again, and the lots this time fall to Jonathan. And so Saul looks at Jonathan and says, tell me, what have you done? Now, let's just make a word for that. If, if you go home and you say, I'm going to grab two rocks. I've been wondering what the Lord has for me. I'm going to throw these rocks and the Lord will tell me. Then I think everybody else in this church should just go. Because how do we know the will of the Lord? Right? So when we say, this is the word of the Lord, guess what we mean? That this is the word of the Lord. That this is how he tells you who you are, who he is, what he wants from you, what he desires for you, that we don't need special stones. We don't need special circumstances. We don't need visions. We don't need dreams. He speaks to us through his word. And as we go to him in prayer, he reveals his word and his will for us. That we don't need these things anymore, but this is what they had at the time. They didn't have one of these. So they would use these two stones. The lot falls to Jonathan, and Saul says, what have you done? And Jonathan, in his bit of teenage angst, says, I tasted the honey. Here I am. I will die. Now, how do you hear that? I think there is just snarcasm pouring out of that. Can I use that word? It's like really sarcastic. I tasted honey. Here I am, I will die. And you can look at that and say, okay, so Jonathan is saying, look, he's, man, he's honoring his king. But that doesn't seem right coming from the guy who just a few verses ago said, my, trouble, uh, my father has troubled the land. It seems more likely that Jonathan is watching all this and he just thinks, what are we doing? What are you doing? You made this foolish oath. You changed direction on whether plundering and eating was good or plundering and eating was bad. Which one is it, Dad? And now this whole thing about dying because I ate a little honey. 
There's a story in Joshua 7 that you may remember, and you may remember enough to where when you're reading this, you're kind of thinking of that one. In Joshua 7, Israel goes to battle against the, uh, the Amorites, and they go and they spy out the land, and they, the spies come back and they say, look, we only need to send 3,000 men because this isn't going to be one of those harder battles. And so they do it. Joshua sends the 3,000 men into battle. 36 of them die pretty much immediately, and the rest of them flee back to Israel. Joshua sees them coming, and he says, what what went wrong? So he falls down on his face before the Lord, and he's trying to figure out, why, Lord, did you not go before us? Why were we defeated this day? And God says to him, because there's sin in the camp. Because something has gone wrong, there's been disobedience among the people, and they find out that one of the men in the camp has taken plunder from the last city they fought, and the Lord had specifically said, don't take anything, burn it all to the ground. Well, this guy saw a few things that he wanted, a guy named Achan, and Achan says, I like these things, I'm going to take these things, and he hides them under his tent. Well, the Lord tells on him. And so they cast lots, and the lots fall to the tribe, and the lots fall to the house, and then the lots fall to Achan, and they say, Achan, come to us. Tell us what you have done. And when he tells them what he has done, Achan, uh, Joshua responds to him, Achan, you have troubled the land. Sound familiar? And what do they do? All of Israel stone Achan. They stone his wives, they stone his sons and daughters, and they burn everything to the ground. I was thinking of that story, and I went back and read it, and one of the first things that stood out to me, because I I, I wonder, why, why does it say in last week's text that, you know, the, the Lord saved Israel that day, and then the battle passed beyond Beth-Avon. Well, you turn back to Joshua 7, and guess where that battle takes place? Beth-Avon. The Lord's not answering Saul, and so it's like the wheels are turning, and he says, oh, there must be sin in our camp. There must be another Achan somewhere here that has risen up. And so just like under Joshua's rule, they cast lots And the lots fall to one man, to Jonathan. But doesn't it seem clear that everyone there knows Jonathan's not the trouble? That Saul is. That Jonathan's not the one who's troubled the land like Achan has. Saul's done that. And yet King Saul is completely unaware of his own sin, so much so that he's seeking to put to death his own son, for the sin that he committed. The people see this, but Saul doesn't. Well, his foolishness continues. He says, God, do so to me, and more also, you shall surely die, Jonathan. And that's when all the people rise up against Saul and say, time out. And then they make an oath of their own. Shall Jonathan die? who has worked this great salvation in Israel, far from it. And they give their oath saying, as the Lord lives, not a hair of his head shall fall to the ground because he has worked with God this day. 
You see what they recognize? No, Jonathan has worked with God. Saul, you haven't. Jonathan loved and trusted the Lord. Saul, you just did religious stuff. The people saw it. And right that moment, the king lost his people. Did you see it? They stopped following him. They stopped trusting him. He's lost it. It's interesting. Saul was the king of Israel, but he's no longer followed. God is the king of Israel, and Saul will not follow him. He will not obey. He will not trust. And now everything's kind of starting to fall by the wayside. It's just spiraling out of control. That Saul was sinning against the Lord, but never even seemed to notice. It was always someone else's fault. Samuel, you didn't come in time, so I had to give the offering. Jonathan, what have you done? He never humbled himself. He never recognized his own sin and its consequences. There was a pride in him, and because of that pride, he lost everything. And we're going to continue to watch his downfall for several chapters here. And then this section ends with this weird thing that says, Saul took the kingship and fought against all his enemies, and it's all these, these hard names that he valiantly struck the Amalekites. He, he, he routed people whichever way he turned. Now notice what it's saying, that he fought all these battles. He was king over all these victories. But the Bible lets us in to see what's happening behind the curtains. Like whenever I meet a newly ordained elder, now like in Presbyterian churches, that would usually be like a, a local businessman, a church member who becomes a, a shepherding pastor of some sorts, not paid by the church, but he's a pastor of the church, a spiritual head. And I always ask him the same question when I find out they just became elders. I always look at them and say, so what do you think about seeing behind the curtain? And their answer is always the same. Their eyes get big and they just say, because sometimes it's hard to believe what actually happens among the people of God. Saul was valiant. Saul was victorious. Everywhere he turned, he routed people in, in battle, but we've seen behind the curtain at who he really is. And in part, the Bible lets us behind the curtain so that we can recognize that we have our own curtain. So that when we see him, we, 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 we are to say, okay, but who are we? So friend, what's behind the curtain of your life? With what sins do you, you do regularly find yourself struggling? If you say, I have no sins, I will tell you your sin. You struggle with pride. Like Saul, it may be a pride that says you're good, but everyone else is messed up. That it's always someone else's fault. Are you like Saul? You hold to a form of godliness, but in all actuality, you just deny its power. Are you truly following the Lord, seeing your need of mercy and trusting that he graciously provides? Look, Saul could have repented whenever he wanted he could have returned to the Lord and turned to him for mercy at any point, and he never did. So don't be like Saul. That's, that's a part of the story, that his heart was hardened. 
And we see how it works out, even coming to the place where he tries to put his own death, uh, his own son to death for his sin. But look, this fallen king that is so clear to us is there to point us to a faithful king who, though he had no sin, joyfully went to the cross for ours. And because he did that, you and I can repent. We can confess. We can come to him at any time, even right now. So the Bible tells us, look, don't harden your heart. Don't ignore your sin. Don't think it's everyone else's fault. No, recognize your need of mercy and recognize you can come to Christ whenever you want because he is gracious and merciful and compassionate. Don't let your heart harden. Turn to him in faith. Like we can read this story, see behind the curtain and just say, ugh, it's gross. It's no good. But throughout the Bible, we, we see stories of bad kings that are there to point us to the perfect king. And we regularly hear the bad news in order to make our hearts long for the good news. For the good news that the promised king has come and he's brought salvation with him. And that there will never be a second where he isn't reigning. There will never be a moment where he isn't faithful there will never be a place where he isn't present. And one day he's going to return and he's making all things new. Oh, it's going to be awesome. So are you living this day with that day in mind? The king's come. And one day he's going to come again. Are you living your life in light of his return? It's not too late start today whatever it is the king is calling you to let's obey